0: Good afternoon, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm a Vice President here at Cato. I'd like to begin with an overview of our event today. Uh, We shall first hear from our author, Keith Whittington, about his new book, Speaking Freely. Then we shall have some comments from Cato adjunct scholar Ilya Soman. And finally, we shall have some time for questions and answers for our panelists. Let me say a word about the question and answer period. We will be taking questions via via Twitter. So, direct your queries to hashtag Cato 1A. That's hashtag Cato 1A. You should have received a piece of paper with it on it. Uh, And in any case, that's hashtag Cato 1A. We look forward to your questions either here at the Hayek Auditorium or online. If you do not wish to use Twitter, please use the card you were given, the paper you were given when you checked in, and we will collect those later. A few more words by way of introduction. The Cato Institute is a public policy research organization, a think tank dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Those who work here see themselves as working within a long tradition of individualism and limited government. That is a political philosophy sometimes called classical liberalism and in other places just called liberalism. The rights of the individual matter to us. For example, we have long defended freedom of speech, the topic of our forum today. We can be thankful that freedom of speech does enjoy support in the United States, not least because of the strong protections for speech recognized in the First Amendment to the Constitution. As the Constitution says, quote, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, unquote. Many outside the university and some inside today wonder whether freedom of speech is endangered on campus, where communities of scholars depend, depend on free exchange of views. We are happy to have here at Cato, Keith Whittington, whose new book, Again, Speaking Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech, uh, addresses the foundations and the reality of freedom of speech at American universities. Now, some words by way of introduction for Keith. Keith E. Whittington is William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics in the Department of Politics at Princeton University. He is the author of the current book, Speak Freely, as well as Constitutional Construction, Divided Powers and Constitutional Meaning, and Constitutional Interpretation, Textual Meaning, Original Intent, and Judicial Review, and yet a third book, Political Foundations of Judicial Supremacy, the Presidency, the Supreme Court, and Constitutional Leadership in US History. This work has made Professor Whittington, along with the late Justice Antonin Scalia, a major exponent of a leading school of constitutional interpretation, public meaning originalism. Now, that sounds pretty esoteric, but trust me, it's a very big deal. (laughs) He has written several other scholarly works in American constitutional theory and development, federalism, judicial politics, and the presidency. He's currently completing two new books. He's a very uh, ambitious fellow. one of which is repugnant laws, judicial review, and acts of Congress from the founding to the present. And the second one is the idea of democracy in America from the American Revolution to the Gilded Age. I've known Keith for many years, and it's a delight to have you here, Keith.
1: Thank you. So thanks for having me, and thanks for coming out. Um, So I don't uh, bear with me uh, uh, policy prescriptions today. I mostly want to talk about um, principles. I think they are principles that matter um, not only on college campuses but in American society uh, more generally. I think we can think about this problem of campus free speech um, as a particular uh, microcosm of larger problems that confront us uh, living in uh, democracies uh, more broadly. And so I think these particular principles um, have some particular importance for those of us who spend a lot of time on college campuses, um, but ultimately they have a lot of importance, I think, for all of us um, working in a liberal democracy democracy uh, more generally. Um, So this book was a bit of an interruption to things I was otherwise uh, working on. um, And some of these uh, books that are actually are genuinely about to be uh, forthcoming at this point um, uh, have been sitting on my desk uh, for quite a while. And and they got delayed a little bit uh, in order to um, work on this book. Um, But I did find myself um, increasingly uh, disturbed um, over the last um, few years and few months not um, uh, really disturbed by lots of things, but, um, but of particular relevance to the moment, um, disturbed by uh, a seemingly endless string of events um, on college campuses, uh, in particular, um, that seem to reflect a fundamental misunderstanding um, of what universities um, do um, and what they're for. Um, and really not a week goes by, even days um, sometimes uh, go by during the academic year. Uh, the summer is a bit of a respite. Um, But hardly a week goes by in which there aren't um, news reports of disruptions of speakers, disinvitations of speakers, um, expansive demands for safe spaces on college campuses, Um, calls for um, firing controversial um, faculty, um, death threats um, against faculty, um, and public policy is sometimes designed really to hollow out um, what universities do. Some of these threats come from on campus, and those are often threats from the political left, Um, but there are also plenty of threats um, that come from the political right, um, and mostly those um, come from off campus. Um, But in all these cases, the common thread is um, a fundamental intolerance of disagreement, um, disagreement, on campus, but also disagreements in our civil society uh, more generally, um, and an unwillingness to accept controversy um, and controversial ideas. There's a tendency sometimes, um, which I think is misguided, to want to blame this particular generation for many of these problems. And so um, uh, the, the... phrase snowflake generation is often um, tossed around um, to characterize uh, this generation of students um, as particularly sensitive, uh, particularly incapable um, of dealing with um, disagreement uh, and intolerance. And like I said, I think this is a misguided way of thinking about what our um, uh, problems are that are confronting us, and also I think a misguided way of thinking about uh, this particular generation of students. Um, Toleration for disagreement and respect for liberty of others um, are persistent challenges, um, not only in American society, but in Western liberal democracies uh, more generally. Um, If you look at survey research focused on people's tolerance for free speech and civil liberties, for example, which at this point we have um, good studies uh, going back decades, uh, we find this has been a constant recurring problem um, of people saying in the abstract that they like free speech, Uh, but then when you um, confront them with particular examples of of speech that they find um, unpleasant, uh, they very quickly backpedal and say, well, except for that. Right, and the, and the content of what it is they make exceptions for, the specific speech uh, people find disagreeable, has varied over time. It's varied across the political spectrum. So different people have different views about what exactly it is that they regard as intolerable. Um, but it's genuinely been true uh, across American history um, that the abstract principle of free speech is often very easily qualified uh, in the moment uh, when we see particular episodes of people trying to exercise free speech. And in that sense, these students today are no different. Um, than the students of a generation ago, or even three or four generations ago, or indeed of the American populace uh, more, more generally. What we're seeing on campuses, therefore, reflects sort of fundamental features about the nature of living in liberal democracies and recurring challenges about living in liberal democracies, Um, and they give us good reasons why we need to then try to think through carefully um, what our commitments are, what the principles that ought to guide us in a liberal democracy are, and it's important that we constantly reaffirm those liberal values, um, even in the face of controversy and disagreement and sometimes uh, very unpleasant examples um, of particular speech that we have to um, uh, tolerate um, and and deal with. I think also the Snowflake Generation uh, uh, way of thinking about this problem underestimates some of the ideological opposition um, to free speech, which also um, exists on college campuses, but also off um, college campuses. Um, There are some people who oppose free speech uh, not simply because they're overly delicate um, or because they find particular things particularly controversial, um, but simply because they're hostile um, to fundamental liberal values. Um, Fortunately, I think that's a small minority. It's a small minority even on college campuses, um, but they are an important segment of the American population and American college campuses in general, and we should be uh, trying to articulate uh, what the core commitments are of American democracy and indeed of liberal universities um, more generally in order to help uh, persuade people that that's not a path uh, that we ought to be going down, um, but instead we ought to be going down the path um, of liberal tolerance um, and reasoned deliberation about the things that we disagree with. So the concern of my book is fundamentally to show how free speech is intimately tied to the core mission of a modern university. Um, And it's not just the case that we are legally obliged to respect free speech because we happen to have a US constitution that has um, a First Amendment um, in it. And the First Amendment constrains, in particular, public universities as um, state actors. But it's also true that those of us who value universities and those of us who are members of campus community um, should also value campus free speech and really those of us living in liberal democracies should value um, uh, free speech um, because they're important principles and because they're valuable, not not just because some judge is going to tell us that we have to. Um, But that requires thinking a little bit about what the mission of a university is. And fundamentally, as I understand what uh, modern universities are committed to, um, despite the fact there's a lot of variation about how exactly they pursue this mission across the American landscape, um, is the universities generally are committed to the production and dissemination of knowledge. Um, Which means that free speech, though, is particularly critical to that truth-seeking function of universities. Free inquiry and open debate are necessary to generating and communicating knowledge. And so it's dispensable if you think the universities are primarily there uh, in order to indoctrinate students, if universities are primarily there simply to convey things that we think we already know. But if we think that we're pushing the boundaries of human knowledge, uh, then we need room for experimentation, for unconventional thinking, and for mistakes to be made, Um, which is why it's particularly important then that universities, if they're gonna fulfill their core mission, um, are quite tolerant um, of a wide range of views on campus and tolerant of people uh, saying things that are controversial and even things things that we think are in fact um, quite mistaken. There are other reasons for supporting free speech, often in other kinds of environments. For example, free speech is particularly uh, important to make a democratic process uh, work, that you can't um, uh, evaluate the performance of your government officials unless you're free um, to give and to hear criticism um, of those government officials. And some of those concerns are less critical in thinking specifically about a university setting. But in a university environment, free speech is particularly valuable for things that are particularly connected to what universities are for. Um, And we've seen this for a long period of time. Lots of people have recognized this and and understood um, this core connection between free speech um, and uh, university. So Daniel Coit Gilman, um, who was the uh, first um, uh, president um, of Johns Hopkins uh, University um, and told his board of trustees when he assumed that presidency at the tail end of reconstruction, uh, the institution we are about to organize would not be worthy of the name of a university if it were to be devoted to any other purpose than the discovery and promulgation of the truth. And it would be ignoble in the extreme that the resources which being given by the founder without restrictions should be limited to the maintenance of ecclesiastical differences or perverted to the use of promotion of political strife. At the spirit of the university should be that of intellectual freedom and the pursuit of truth and of the broad charity toward those with whom we differ in opinion. It is certain that sectarian and partisan preferences should have no control over the selection of teachers and should not be apparent in the official work of the university. This fundamental precept that the connection between the mission of the university as a truth-seeking institution and the importance of free speech and tolerance of disagreement on university campuses in order to advance that mission has really been essential to how we've understood uh, the nature of modern universities. We haven't been always very perfect in how we've tried to implement that. We haven't always fully appreciated um, those principles. There's been a long period of struggle to try to fully realize and appreciate what those principles are. And we need to continue to affirm those principles um, today as well. So the book tries to lay out, then, the liberal case for free speech in a truth-seeking institution. And I won't rehearse those arguments uh, here particularly, but just to note um, that the key points are, uh, one, that the only way to gain true knowledge is to test it through argument, um, that we may have things that we take on faith but if we truly want to believe them, if we want to know that they're correct and can stand up um, to criticism, we need to see them stand up to criticism. We need to see them tested. Um, And that's what universities are fundamentally committed to is the testing of claims um, to see just how true they are um, and whether or not they need to be modified, um, rejected, um, or accepted um, ultimately. And the only way to do that um, is to tolerate a great deal of disagreement and skeptical inquiry. But secondly, in the context of controversial speech, we have also learned as Americans across a long period of time that we can't trust any potential censor empowered to suppress disfavored speech. That's true in the university environment, but it's also true in American politics more generally, that we may be able to identify particular instances of speech that we think um, ought to be suppressed, and we may have good reasons for thinking that. But as soon as we empower somebody uh, with a general power to suppress speech um, because it's disfavorable, we will soon find that all kinds of speech will be um, suppressed, including speech that we think, in fact, is very important. And that's necessarily going to be the case once you've empowered somebody to suppress controversial speech. It's controversial precisely because people disagree about the value um, of that particular speech. And so as a consequence, we ought to be extraordinarily cautious um, about trying to empower people, whether university administrators or government officials, um, to suppress speech that they find uh, particularly disagreeable. So with those principles in mind, we are better positioned to think through particular controversies as they arise, and I try to walk through some of the kinds of controversies that we've seen on college campuses um, of late. Um, But we're likely to make mistakes in thinking about those controversies if we don't start with thinking about first principles and what ought to be guiding us um, in, in general. But as we start thinking about specific kinds of controversies and scandals that arise, we might start with thinking about what's at the very heart of the university's operations, um, which is what we ought to have in respect of the freedom to pursue scholarship and teaching uh, with regard only to professional standards and the pursuit of truth and without regard to social and political pressures. So at the very core of what the university does um, is allow for scholarly research and to teach students. And in that context in particular, uh, we developed the concept of academic freedom precisely in order to design to protect um, that um, core area of university activity. This isn't the freedom to say anything in the classroom, for example, or even anything in publications from faculty, but it's the freedom to push the boundaries um, of human knowledge. But even beyond that core aspect of what universities do, college campuses are also vibrant intellectual communities in which debate over ideas extends well beyond the basic scholarly enterprise of research and teaching. They have long been places where important matters of public concern can be discussed, where students can engage with controversial ideas. And a great deal would be lost if colleges were reduced to nothing but research and teaching. And universities then need free speech as well as academic freedom if they're going to truly serve their function and be a home of intellectual contest more generally. This was recognized, for example, by a federal circuit court in the 1970s when the University of Mississippi tried to close a literary magazine that university officials uh, said um, published things that were tasteless and inappropriate. Um, And the federal judges emphasized to to those campus administrators that the historical role of the university in expressing opinions which may well not make favor with the majority of society and in serving as a vanguard in the fight for freedom of expression and opinion. Sometimes you have to tolerate things that you regard as tasteless and inappropriate or offensive um, and even dangerous precisely because universities um, are trying to make space for people to disagree, for people to test out new ideas, and for sometimes for people to make mistakes and sometimes even for people to be outrageous and offensive. Recognizing the role of universities for robust public debate has meant, for example, that universities have allowed students to form numerous groups on their own and given them equal access to resources to explore their own interests and concerns. Thus, for example, when Virginia Commonwealth University tried to ban the Gay Alliance for Students in the 1970s, um, again, uh, university officials um, thought that that particular student organization was promoting what it regarded as abhorrent, even sickening um, ideas. And again, a federal circuit court had to point out that student associations devoted to the advocacy of political, social, legal, and other objectives are part of higher education and useful for the preparation of of later life, for citizens who are going to live in an American democracy in which people are going to disagree about basic commitments and basic freedoms and basic values. And universities should be a home for students to experience that disagreement and learn how to work their way through it. Recognizing this role for universities for robust public debate has meant, for example, that there should be a robust space for protests on college campuses. Students and others should be able to express their views about matters of public concern. They should be able to express those in a way that makes sense to them and that can attract attention. But it's inappropriate for protests to take the form of interfering with the ability of others to pursue their own activities on a college campus. Willing speakers should be able to communicate with willing audiences. Members of the campus community should want to be able to hear ideas and and they ought to be able to hear the ideas that they want to hear ultimately. Disruptions, disinvitations, tearing down signs, throwing out papers are all efforts to quash communications and shut down the free exchange of ideas on campuses. Students have a right to ignore speech that they find appalling or unpersuasive or to take up the challenge of countering such speech with arguments of their own. They need not engage with what they might regard as, for example, debates on subtle topics, as some students have said but they do not have the privilege of insisting that no one else be allowed to treat those questions as unsettled or unresolved. A college campus cannot claim to be serious about trying to create an environment open to skeptical inquiry and free-ranging pursuit of the truth if it cannot tolerate the airing of controversial and discomforting ideas. Faculties and administrators do not have the courage of their convictions if they cannot tolerate having their students hear from speakers that university officials themselves think are obnoxious or mistaken. But that also implies responsibility on the part of those inviting speakers and hosting discussions on college campuses. (laughs) The faculty hired by the university are evaluated by their peers for the quality of their scholarly work and their ability to meet disciplinary expectations about the understanding of their subject. Outside speakers are brought to campus for different reasons. They're brought to campus to discuss public affairs and are not expected to meet those same scholarly standards. Their contributions to the intellectual community are different than what the faculty contribute. But hopefully, their contributions are still real and ultimately valuable. If the students want to hear from, for example, Peter Navarro or Kid Rock or Robert Reich or Michael Moore, universities should have the courage of their convictions and allow students to hear and evaluate their arguments, no matter how badly flawed or morally bankrupt university administrators or faculty or even other students might think those arguments ultimately are. But the goal of bringing such speakers to campus should be to enlighten and not merely to provoke. Students should want to hear from the best representative of serious ideas that are worth their time and attention. No doubt students will have somewhat different ideas about what's worth their time and attention than I do, uh, for example, but they should take seriously their own responsibility to advance the mission of the university by seeking knowledge and not just pushing boundaries. When we are making decisions about whom to invite to campus to speak, the goal should neither be to stack the deck with our closest allies nor to sprinkle in the most extreme provocateurs. The goal should be to make available to the campus community thoughtful representatives of serious ideas. Embracing free speech is easy if the speech never seems very challenging. It's easy to listen to pleasing ideas and affirmations of our own prior beliefs. It is much more difficult to learn to tolerate those with whom we disagree and who espouse ideas we find preposterous, repugnant, or even dangerous. We should, however, learn not only to tolerate those disagreements, but to seek them out. For it is through controversy and contestation that we can make progress, often in the most unexpected ways. So let me end by noting that universities sometimes struggle to sustain the kind of diverse intellectual communities that would best facilitate the advancement and dissemination of knowledge themselves. John Stuart Mill worried that a closed society too comfortable in its own convictions would retreat into dogmatism. Despite their own aspirations, universities risk their own retreat into comfortable intellectual bubbles. The university must strive to screen out bad ideas but must also strive to bring to campus those who will question and not merely affirm received wisdom. If a community of scholars is not to become lethargic and if the advancement of knowledge is to proceed, um, scholars cannot be complacent in their studies and blind to their own deficiencies and biases. Universities should be striving to nurture intellectual diversity on their own campuses. When training, hiring, and promoting scholars who make their home on college campuses, universities should demand rigor and professional accomplishment but there should also be an openness to new ideas and a spirit of skepticism and intellectual curiosity. If universities are to operate at the outer boundaries of our state of knowledge and to push those boundaries further outward, they must be places where new, unorthodox, controversial, and disturbing ideas can be raised and scrutinized. If students are to prepare themselves to critically engage the wide range of perspectives and problems that they will encounter out in the world across their lifetimes, they must learn to grapple with and critically examine ideas they find difficult and offensive. For more than a century, universities have committed themselves to the mission of advancing and disseminating knowledge and have recognized that the free-ranging exchange of ideas was essential to the realization of that mission. They have often pursued that mission perfectly, and they have sometimes need to be called to account to better appreciate and work to realize their own ideals. But recognizing and respecting um, uh, the principles of free speech is difficult and challenging, but there's no alternative if we are dedicated to the pursuit of truth. And the pursuit of truth is the noble and important mission of the modern
0: university. Thank you. Thank you, Keith, very good. Uh, I w- I'd like to remind you that if you would like to ask a question, uh, the hashtag cato one a is where you send it via Twitter. If you have a piece of paper filled out, please let us know and uh, someone will pick it up uh, for you. Um, our commenter today is Ilya Solman. Ilya is professor of law at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar, as I mentioned, here at the Cato Institute. His research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and the study of popular political participation and its implications for constitutional democracy. He is the author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, which from 2016. Uh, Another book, The Grasping Hand, Kilo and City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain from Uh, A a second edition, uh, originally 2015, a paperback 2016. He's co-author of A Conspiracy Against Obamacare, the Volokh Conspiracy in the Healthcare Case, and also Eminent Domain, A Comparative Perspective, a co-editor of that. Uh, Democracy and Political Ignorance has been translated into Italian and Japanese. Maybe he can tell us whether it's made a, a difference there. Uh, Mentioning the Vala Conspiracy, Professor Solman regularly contributes to public debate in leading venues. He writes regularly for the Vala Conspiracy Law and Politics blog, which is now affiliated with uh, Reason Magazine and was previously, as you probably know, affiliated with the Washington Post. He's been the co-editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review a top-rated law and economics journal. He earned his uh, BA from Amherst, which, again, maybe we could get some insights about what Amherst was like in those days, and uh, an MA in political science from Harvard, and a JD from Yale Law. Welcome back, Ilya. We look forward to your comments.
2: I'd like to start by uh, thanking the Cato Institute for organizing this event and congratulating Keith on an outstanding book on certainly an extremely timely topic, which one might even say has been made great again by recent events, though, as Keith (laughs) explains in the book, uh, it's been a very important topic for many years, uh, so it's not entirely a new issue by any means. Uh, Normally, when I serve as a commentator on a book, I regard it as my job to sort of find points of disagreement and take issue with some of the things that the author says. In this case, I agree with about 95% or even more of what Keats says in the book, so it may be somewhat tough to do that. So instead, in the first part of my presentation, I'm going to amplify Keats' argument in a, in a number of ways and suggest that in some ways the problem that he identifies may be even worse than he suggested it is. Then I will, in fact, take issue at least to a limited degree with some of Keats' and analysis of the problem of faculty hiring. Uh, Here, I think free speech principles are still important, but it may be more difficult to apply them uh, than in other settings on campus, and more difficult perhaps than Keith lets on in the book. And then finally, at the end of my presentation, I'll talk briefly about what can we do about this problem? How can we strengthen protection for free speech on campus? Uh, So Keith... Both in the book and in his presentation, he explains quite eloquently the nature of the problem and why we should be concerned about it. In some ways, though, however, there's even more reason for concern than uh, perhaps Keats suggests. One reason is that if you develop a kind of ideological orthodoxy on campus or in particular departments or parts of the university, this problem is self-reinforcing. When you have a group of people who are ideologically homogenous, research by people like Cass Sunstein at Harvard shows that they feed on each other, they become even more extreme over time and more intolerant of opposing views. And I think we have seen this happen in some academic fields, also in some campuses and the like as well. And it is pernicious in that um, Uh, Once you get started down this path, uh, it's difficult to stop. Closely related is the phenomenon of what the economist Timor Kuron calls preference falsification. If you think uh, that the expression of certain views that you have is going to be dangerous, it'll lead to social sanctions, or in the case of faculty and administrators, it'll damage your career, uh, you are likely to hide those views. Uh, and I think we see some of this uh, certainly among some scholars and also among uh, some students on campus as well, according to surveys. Of course, when people hide... Hide their dissenting views, that makes it seem like there's more of a consensus than there actually is, and it reduces the quality of debate. And this phenomenon, too, to some extent, feeds on itself in that uh, if most of the other adherents of your viewpoint are hiding their true preferences, uh, that makes it more of an incentive for you to hide yours as well. You don't want to be the only one that sticks out as saying that the emperor has no clothes or that, uh, that some... Uh, Orthodoxy should be questioned. Uh, And I think the extent to which this is a problem varies between different academic disciplines. It also varies between different campuses. I'm certainly not suggesting that all campuses are completely homogenous or all academic fields, far from it, but this clearly is a problem in some fields uh, and in some campuses uh, more than Uh, Others. Uh, Another factor that has developed in recent years that makes the situation worse is the growth of ideological and partisan polarization and hatred. Uh, In many surveys taken in recent years, uh, we have data indicating that hostility towards supporters of the opposite political party uh, is stronger and more deeply rooted even than racial or ethnic or religious hostility. For example, recent survey data indicates that some 30 to 40% of people would be angry or unhappy if a relative of theirs married a member of the opposing political party. Uh, This is far higher than the percentage who say they would be unhappy if a member of their family uh, married somebody from another race or ethnicity. It's even actually much higher than the number who say they would be angry or unhappy uh, if somebody in their family married a member of a different religion. So uh, these numbers have grown uh, strikingly, and obviously the more we – feel hostility to adherents of other ideologies, other things equal, the more difficult it is for us to tolerate their speech, to apply free speech principles to them equally, and so forth. I think we see this phenomenon on both the right and the left, uh, growing hostility to the other side. Uh, Obviously on campus, this manifests itself more often in the form of attempts to suppress right of center speech because of the fact that on most campuses, not all but most, uh, the political left is in a relatively dominant position, but this is not to say that the right would be any better in situations where uh, they could predominate similarly. Uh, Finally, uh, I think the rise of Trump uh, actually makes this problem worse. Uh, During the 2016 election, I wrote a blog post entitled, How Trump Strengthens the Forces of Political Correctness. Now, it seems strange. How could we possibly be doing that, given that he's actually been fulminating against political correctness? And many people say that, uh, what his election represents is a backlash against it. But the way he strengthens is it is that given the things he says and the way that he says them, he reinforces the perception of the PC left that the only alternative to their viewpoint is racism, sexism, xenophobia, and prejudice. And as the Uh, most prominent representative of the political right in American society today. Uh, He makes it easy for people to feel that the political right is not intellectually serious. They don't actually have ideas worth considering. So very little will be lost if we in fact don't tolerate their speech on campus. Indeed much may actually begin because that may only be the only way to prevent the rise of racism, sexism uh, and other prejudices with which uh, Trump is associated. Uh, Now some people argue really the politically correct themselves are at fault for the rise of Trump because his election represents a reaction against their excesses. Uh, I think this argument is overblown, but in this particular presentation, I'm not actually entering the question of who started it. All I'm saying is that uh, the way that th- what Trump does reinforces political correctness, and to some extent, what they do reinforce uh, his position as well. And so this problem has become a cycle, which uh, has made the situation worse, not only on campus, uh, but certainly on campus in particular. Uh, So I think these forces coming together, uh, ideological polarization, the rise of Trump, uh, preference, falsification, and so forth, uh, they all make the problem in some ways even worse uh, than Keith's book suggests. Uh, Now, throughout most of the book, uh, Keith argues, and I agree, that what we need to do on campus is apply free speech principles, not suppress speech simply based on its content or viewpoint or its offensiveness uh, and the like. But Keith recognizes that we may not be able to completely do that when it comes to the area of faculty hiring. Uh, In that, as Keith uh, noted in in his presentation, when faculty are hired, they have to be judged by disciplinary standards whether they meet whether the quality of their work is up to snuff in various ways, and at least in some cases, this may involve judging the substance of their viewpoints, for example. If you see a candidate for a position in a geography department who is an exponent of flat-earth theory, no matter how good his qualifications in other respects, the fact that uh, he's a flat-earth enthusiast is going to be a deal-breaker. Similarly, if you're hiring a World War II historian uh, and it turns out he's a Holocaust denier, again, no matter what the quality of his other qualifications, you probably can't hire that person. Being a Holocaust denier is in and of itself an indicator of professional incompetence in that particular field. Uh, so Keith says the way we address this is we should weave the disciplinary hiring decisions and promotion decisions to experts in the field rather than say let bureaucrats or politicians decide things. And to a wide extent, I agree uh, that we, you know, we, we want people judging faculty candidates who are qualified in the relevant field. Uh, However, even for such people, it is often difficult to draw the line between situations like Holocaust denial, where expounding a particular viewpoint uh, really is an indicator of of professional incompetence versus other cases where uh, we simply don't like or disagree with uh, the viewpoint expounded by the scholar. Uh, And we know both from. Uh, some studies which have systematic data, and also from a great deal of anecdotal evidence that uh, often, uh, particularly in some disciplines, scholars don't do a good job of drawing a distinction between these two things. And so you get ideological discrimination in hiring, uh, which I think is a quite significant phenomenon, uh, and uh, which contributes to the ideological homogeneity and other factors that I um, mentioned earlier. Notice that this can be self-perpetuating. If you don't hire people with dissenting views, uh, then uh, the faculty in your particular department will become more and more homogenous over time, uh, and it'll become more and more unthinkable to hire people who disagree. Uh, And it is not my claim that the underrepresentation of conservatives, libertarians, in academia is solely due to discrimination in hiring. Far from it. There are a number of other factors as well. Uh, but I think it is a contributing factor. And it's one that's relatively difficult to break because we can't simply say, we're going to hire faculty completely without regard to their viewpoint. Uh, we have to draw this fine line between cases where expounding a viewpoint really is an indicator of incompetence and in cases where uh, we have a perfectly legitimate contribution to debate, but the person is being discriminated against in hiring uh, because the people doing the hiring don't like his ideas or her ideas. Uh, and often those people who are guilty of making this mistake are, in fact, other faculty members who are the experts who are supposed to be doing the hiring. It is not primarily the fault of the bureaucrats or politicians or other uh, kinds of forces. Uh, I don't think there's any easy solution to this problem other than perhaps for people to be more aware of it and to try to be more conscious of the need to check their own thinking. Uh, and if your own department is ideologically homogeneous for whatever reason, maybe you want to make more use of outside experts who are maybe more ideologically diverse to help evaluate uh, the candidates. This is already done to some extent. Uh, in faculty hiring decisions, but I think usually they don't make a special effort to get ideological diversity among the outside referees, and it would probably be desirable uh, to do that more often. Uh, so what can we do to alleviate this problem? Uh, Keats' book offers some well-taken recommendations, which I certainly agree with, such as enforcing free speech rules on campus. Also, when students or outside people try to disrupt speakers or use violence to prevent them from speaking, that needs to be prevented, and it needs to be punished. If you don't punish exercises of the hackers veto, uh, you should expect to see more hackers vetoes and. some campuses uh, have handled these sorts of situations better than others. I mentioned earlier already uh, trying to promote non-discrimination in faculty hiring. Also, when universities hold panels or events on politically controversial subjects, at least in many cases, they should try to uh, have an ideologically balanced panel, certainly not suggesting that should always be done. There are sometimes good reasons to have a more homogeneous one. uh, But they should at least have have some significant proportion of their events uh, be ideologically balanced. Uh, In the very last uh, couple of minutes of my talk, I'd like to talk about what can the advocates of free speech on campus do to uh, promote their cause better? In particular, what can conservatives and libertarians on campus do, since they are the group that is often, not always, but often the one most victimized by campus policies that may be hostile to free speech? I think the biggest recommendation I have to these groups is that you should be an intellectually serious group of people. That is, you should not behave in the way that I described Trump as behaving earlier, as someone that's easily dismissed as a blowhard and as highly intolerant yourself. When you decide who to invite on campus, uh, you should should make sure that you should not be inviting people simply because they anger or offend the other side. Uh, Therefore, you should not be inviting the and Coulter's and Milo is of the world, people who are basically provocateurs and have little, if anything, of substance to say, if the only virtue of your potential speaker uh, is that he will attract some headlines by saying something stupid or offensive and that he will annoy the people on the other side, that means it's probably a bad speaker. Now, I hasten to add that if student groups do invite these sorts of people, they should not be met with violence and the school should not suppress their speech. But the fact that the their speech should not be suppressed is not an indicator that it's actually a valuable contribution to intellectual discourse. Uh, what you should be doing uh, is inviting the sorts of people who really do have a valuable contribution to make and the sorts of people who at least potentially can appeal to those who don't already agree with their viewpoint. Uh, if you look at the history of how different minority groups have succeeded in promoting their rights and creating a better image for them in the relevant society. Uh, it is by uh, at behaving in a, in a serious way and by engaging in outreach to those who don't already agree. Uh, this is how the civil rights movement succeeded. More recently, the gay rights movement and there are other examples. Uh, and campus conservatives, libertarians should take the a lesson from those examples rather than from Milo Yiannopoulos, and Coulter, and others uh, of that ilk. In addition, uh, conservative libertarian groups would do well to also oppose threats to free speech from the right as well as from the left, for example, They should condemn things like Trump's encouragement of violence by his supporters during the 2016 presidential campaign. If you condemn threats to free speech from your own side of the political spectrum, you are more credible when you condemn them uh, on the other side. Uh, So more can be said on these topics. But uh, for now, I conclude and I very much look forward to the discussion. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Ilya. Um, Could someone please get that particular question? If you have a a paper, uh, I'm going to go to Twitter also, but it will be brought up to us. Thank you very much. And also, again, on uh, (laughs) Twitter, uh, hashtag Cato 1A to send your questions. Let me begin uh, by saying, uh, posing a question to Keith. Uh, that I think we've actually talked about, and many people do, about this issue. Is it the case, uh, as far as you can tell, that the issues about free speech, the illiberalism you referred to, you mentioned some actually are anti-liberal, anti-free speech, those seem to correlate highly with not perhaps the entire university, but parts of the university, particular departments. And here I would say uh, one way to think about this would be you're more likely to have those points of view if uh, you're, you're one of the children of Michel Foucault and you're a postmodern kind of department, uh, if you're an English department. That is, this is the notion that all knowledge is power, and therefore that the it's directly contrary to your vision of a university. And so I guess the question I'm asked, these are new, they seem to be the uh, most glamorous in some ways, the most heard-from kinds of departments, and they also seem to be departments that administrators uh, are very reluctant to respond to forcefully, I guess I would say. Uh, Given all of that, doesn't that suggest that, uh, and is it, first of all, is what I've described, do you think, true, to what extent does it describe a more general issue at the university? In other words, are these departments quite small and marginalized, or are they in fact important? I mean, one of the departments, if you read the Chronicle of Higher Education, seems to be the Department of English, which is an older department, but still uh, same kinds of ideas. So to what, I guess the question is, to what extent has the notion gotten into the faculty that everything's about power and that truth is just a kind of veneer for power And therefore, your conception and ideal of a university is held by some, but really not by the dominant group. So either of you can answer to this, but Keith first. Sure. Um, and,
1: and this goes to some degree to uh, Ilya's concern that I'm uh, underselling the problem that actually exists um, on campus uh, today, um, which may be true to some degree. I, I, my instinct is, is to, in general, um, counsel not to panic um, and, to, and to be relatively optimistic um, about um, what things can do. But it may well be that the uh, best way of selling the book is to tell you it's a crisis, um, you should panic, and the only way to solve the problem is to buy the book. (laughs) Um, So so let me say that. Um, But but I do think it's a genuine problem. And and moreover, I think it is true that some of these um, tendencies that you highlight um, are certainly not randomly distributed um, across the university. That um, You don't find uh, equal numbers of students and faculty um, in, say, uh, the chemistry department um, who have uh, views that are uh, quite illiberal and hostile um, to the value of free speech and, and uh, the tolerance um, of, of opposing uh, viewpoints uh, that you might find uh, in some other departments on campus. Um, so I think that's true, right? There, there are people on campus doing it, and one reason why I was motivated to write the book is precisely because I think, in part, uh, we on college campuses are confronting an internal battle about what the future of universities are going to look like um, and what are going to be the predominant set of ideas um, uh, that are going to um, uh, be heard on college campuses uh, in the future. And I think it's critically important, not only for universities but for the United States and, and Western civilization uh, more generally, um, that it be liberal ideas, um, they're dominant on campus in the future. Um, the same kinds of ideas that have been articulated by uh, university leadership for the last 100 years uh, and more. And, and I'm optimistic that will be true. Um, and that it is it is true now, and I think it will be true in the future, um, that there are a small minority um, of students and faculty who are quite hostile um, to those ideas on college campuses, but they exist um, and, and they should be um, countered um, in part by trying to, one, emphasize the fact that they remain a small minority. That's not representative of what college campuses are like uh, more generally. Um, That's important for the outside world to know, but it's also important for those of us on college campuses to recognize the fact that these very loud voices um, are very loud, um, but they are um, also um, a relatively small group. Um, and should be uh, treated um, as such and and dealt with as such. There's a much uh, broader group um, of students and faculty um, that either are already committed to liberal values um, or are persuadable um, uh, to liberal values, and we ought to be trying to appeal um, to them to appreciate the importance of um, toleration and civil discourse.
0: Elliot, do you have some points on so, that? So, first of
2: all, it is certainly not my claim that we should panic. Uh, and I do think it is possible to overestimate this problem. I some under right do just that. So, it is certainly true that it varies a lot by department and by university. It is also true that for every time you see a right-of-center speaker disrupted, there are dozens or even hundreds of instances where right-of-center speakers, including myself, actually speak without any problems or disruptions. Uh, so, you can regard the glass as half-full rather And half empty. Indeed, it's more than half full. That said, in some departments and in some universities, there is a serious problem. And in some ways, I think it is growing over time. And therefore, it should be dealt with where possible before it becomes a crisis. And I do agree also that on the faculty side, in terms of ideological discrimination and the like, it is much worse in some departments than others. Uh, I think as a general rule, it tends to be worse in the humanities than in the social sciences or the hard sciences. Uh, And it probably is true that those fields where postmodernist ideology has a large presence, it's worse, partly for the reason you mentioned, that ideology itself, counsels suppression in some instances, but partly because uh, these fields under the... Influence of these uh, of, of of these kind of ideologies, they lack intellectual rigor, and the less. Uh, intellectual rigor you have, the easier it is to just fall prey to your prejudices. This can happen even in fields which do have intellectual rigor, but it's even easier uh, when they do not. Uh, So once a department or a field has been heavily captured by this kind of approach, it's not easy to figure out what to do with it. What ideally you would want to do is hire adherents of other methodologies so that the field will be less homogenous and so it can gradually be won back to more serious into actual discourse, but doing this in an aggressive way would require violating the autonomy of the faculty in that field who are supposed to do the hiring. So uh, once the problem goes beyond a certain point in a particular field, it's uh, difficult to deal with. But fortunately, I think the problem is somewhat less severe in those fields. They're actually more important to political discourse, social sciences, law, economics, and so forth. And therefore, there we can probably address the problem without having to resort to really drastic means.
0: So to the... Twitter uh, feed, uh, question, is the problem of a free, of, of free speech crisis, or is that it, or a crisis of identity in higher education? Maybe the marketplace of ideas metaphor just doesn't work as well anymore because universities and students see their mission as more about credentialing uh, and less about discovering truth. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's a real concern, um, That uh, uh, and and that's not I mean, so, so the question sort of mixes a couple of things. I think, in fact, both are important. So one, this view that um, identity politics, for example, might be particularly important on campus, and that um, uh, may uh, run afoul of this sort of core commitment um, of uh, university as a, in the pursuit of truth. But also, universities um, might be perceived as sort of a consumer-driven credentialing service, um, in which case the pursuit of truth isn't very important either. Um, that really um, what you should be encouraging on college campuses um, is the ability of students to move uh, smoothly through the process, um, get the credentials that will uh, set them on the road um, to higher incomes, um, and uh, uh, preferably nothing that will um, uh, 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 put dirt on the brand. Um, uh, it's, uh, and so um, then quashing controversy uh, might very well be in your interest. And I think a lot of senior administrators on college campuses think. Exactly that, right? That the worst thing that can happen on your college campus is somebody says something controversial um, because then you'll get public attention and it will hurt the brand. And the brand is we credential good students will be good employees. Um, And I think that's self-defeating. I think in the long term, what makes universities valuable, including valuable for those who are going through them and and getting degrees from them, um, is that they are learning something. And and part of what they're learning um, is that ability to grapple with disagreeable ideas, um, to think seriously and carefully, um, and to think um, independently um, and and unconventionally. Um, and if we suppress um, that uh, in the name of credentialing, um, then at the end of the day, the credentials we're going to give out um, are not going to be seen as particularly valuable um, and worth and worth defending. Uh, so I think the issue of
2: credentialism is an important one. Recently, the economist Brian Kaplan published a book called The Case Against Education, where he argues that we invest too much in higher education, where often people – Either learn relatively little or uh, at least learn very little that's useful to their future wives, but they get the additional education anyway so they can improve their credentials, uh, and there's a lot of waste there. I think. I have some disagreements with his argument. There's some definitely something to it. But I'm skeptical that the threat to free speech and free inquiry on, on campus comes primarily from this direction. If you look at the people trying to suppress speech on campus, most of them are not people who only care about credentials. Those kinds of people just be indifferent to uh, speech or indifferent to the search for truth. Rather, it's people who do, in fact, care deeply about political issues, many of them are themselves, left-wing critics of credentialism and capitalism and the like uh, and so the problem is not that they're indifferent to truth it's that they believe they have the truth uh, and pernicious ideas that are that they see as hostile to the truth need to be suppressed so we have multiple different problems on campus one is indeed an issue of credentialism and waste but the problem of free speech I think is largely uh, separate from that one
0: What role do rising costs around free speech events play in in the role universities have in protecting free speech? We had this incident just recently where a a student group, I believe in Florida, was asked to pay these additional security costs. Uh, Is this a big issue? I think it's becoming
1: a very big issue. Universities are starting to take very seriously the potential need for security um, for some events, um, and and that security is expensive. Um, and universities are trying to figure out how to how to grapple with that expense. And one way of, of dealing with it is to push the expense off um, on the students, which will have the consequence um, of effectively suppressing a, a law speech that might otherwise take place because it can't uh, be affordable um, uh, for the students themselves. So it's going to be a challenge, I think, for universities to figure out how to uh, navigate that current situation, I think the correct answer cannot be um, we're going to tell you um, there's a set of speakers you can't bring to campus because they're just too expensive, Um, in particular because that's going to um, cut in very particular ways. Um, So universities, I think, have to be very cautious about how to figure out how to deal with this problem in a way that's relatively neutral um, across um, the range of speakers that might be brought to campus. Um, And they need to deal with it in part by trying to address the security needs from a different Um, perspective, um, which is uh, don't necessarily uh, take for granted that students um, uh, and others can be on your campus and be extraordinarily uh, disruptive, um, and therefore you have to hire a lot of police in order to deal with the immediate disruption, but there's no long-term consequences. You need to try to create a campus in which that kind of thing is discouraged in the first place.
0: If we agree that free speech should be suspended for direct incitement of violence, how do we draw the line without making it a soft line that everyone wants to move in their preferred direction? And I would add to this question, what about this uh, view we hear that seems to be fairly common, that speech itself equals violence? Is that correct that you do hear that quite often? And that is, of course, the ultimate softening of the line, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think it is all the ultimate softening of the line. I think it's a um, it's a somewhat powerful metaphor that, in some context, in some theoretical literatures. Um, uh, started off really being a metaphor and people sort of understood it in a metaphorical way um, and now people increasingly are weaponizing it in order to use that idea that speech is violence um, in a more literal way as a way therefore of justifying um, not only shutting down speech but maybe sometimes using actual violence in order to um, oppose speech and that's very pernicious um, and and should be uh, rejected um, and we should reemphasize that there's a difference um, between uh, speech and, and violence in general um, even speech- that we might think of as relatively dangerous. I would also emphasize, though, I think in terms of the first point that where do you draw the line exactly is that um, this is something that U.S. constitutional law has struggled with for a century as to where exactly do you draw the line uh, with dangerous speech. Uh, Most of the people we thought were uh, who were articulating dangerous speech came from the left in the early 20th century. Um, And in the the 19th century constitutional inheritance was one um, of it was relatively easy for government officials to suppress that speech um, on the claim uh, that it was uh, potentially dangerous Um, and the less and we learned from that is we shouldn't trust those government officials um, to suppress speech they thought was dangerous because they would sweep much too widely um, and suppress um, far more speech um, than was actually necessary in order to prevent violence itself. And so uh, across the last century we've made a gradual march um, toward trying to tighten up those restrictions so we suppress less and less speech um, in order to draw the line as narrowly as possible to prevent actual violence. Um, and I think we've gotten to a reasonably good place uh, from a legal perspective and I think part of what's important is the, culturally, um, we need to come to the defense of that uh, basic uh, legal um, position that we've now um, uh, uh, reached.
2: Yeah, I mean, I largely agree with any rule or legal doctrine, there are going to be difficult borderline questions. But as Keith mentioned, we have decades of constitutional law and legal decisions on these cases. And uh, for the most part, they have done a reasonably good job of separating out the rare cases where there is direct incitement to violence from cases where it's either not incitement to violence or violence can be prevented by means other than uh, suppressing speech. So I think as a practical matter, an institution committed uh, to protecting speech uh, can simply make use of these uh, legal doctrines. It may be that there are some details which have to be tweaked a little bit for the campus environment, but overall, uh, I think where there's a will to protect freedom of speech, uh, you can generally find a way while simultaneously preventing violence. I would add further that uh, one of the better ways of preventing violence is simply through deterrence. If in fact, you credibly commit to to punishing people who disrupt speakers or who otherwise engage in violence you should see less of that uh, sort of activity to begin with and therefore your security cost might actually be lower in that uh, the way you really prevent it is not so much by having lots of armed guards all over the place but by making clear for example the people who engage in violence if they're staff they will be fired if they're students they will be expelled or suspended and the like uh, and if they're outsiders uh, they will be turned over to the police uh, and prosecutors. Uh, So this may not deter a small number of highly motivated terrorists or whatever, but most campus disruptors are not people who are really willing to suffer enormous costs in in order to engage in their disruption, and those kinds of people are deterrable.
0: Back to Twitter. These tendencies of intolerance at universities will hurt the students after they graduate and enter the real world, In the real world problems do not get resolved with violence, rioting, shouting people down. So that raises the question, uh, why isn't there apparently more resistance, more unhappiness about all of these things from the students themselves? And can you give us some insight about uh, how students uh, view these kinds of things? Do, are they indifferent? Uh, this comment suggests you know, that this is harming their education. And of course, it may well be harming the people, the students that are involved. So
1: so I am a little bit optimistic, actually, that I think students, um, and I think also, for that matter, campus administrators and faculty, um, uh, are having their eyes opened a little bit um, as to what the situation uh, uh, might be like um, on college campuses if you don't push back. Um, on some of these. Um, and, and I think students themselves then are starting to appreciate um, that they prefer to be on a college campus in which um, it's possible for people to disagree with one another. Um, it's possible for people to say things that are controversial. It's possible to attend a class or attend a lecture um, without um, disruptions and having it uh, be shut down. Um, so I think the students themselves are beginning to push back on this and embrace uh, more liberal values. And I think, so I think it's important, one, to arm them... Um, with um, a a better understanding of those principles and commitments and, and why we have them and what the implications of them uh, might be. Um, and I think it's also important to remind students that that, that is, in some ways, the silent majority. Um, that there is a very noisy minority of students who want to be disruptive, who want to shut down speech, um, and it's easy for students to start thinking, um, all the students think this way, I'm the outlier um, in thinking that we shouldn't behave that way. Um, and campuses have made some progress on things like binge drinking, for example, by emphasizing to students um, that, in fact, not all of your peers um, uh, behave in those particular ways, you do not have to emulate them or, or follow along um, uh, just because you think everybody's doing it because, in fact, not everybody's doing it. Um, and I think that the same thing has to be true in the speech context as well. We should emphasize not everybody's doing it, and it's okay to push back.
2: Yeah, I mean, I basically agree. I would also uh, reinforce Keith's caution from his talk that, we shouldn't overgeneralize about students and paint them with a broad brush. Uh, both survey data and a lot of other evidence reveals there's a wide diversity of attitudes among students. Uh, I think probably only a small minority of students engage in violent speech disruption or support such activities. Uh, but obviously, that minority can have disproportionate clout. Uh, I do think also, while students and others have uh, come to pay attention, and in many cases dislike and oppose sort of visible, forcible disruption of speakers. I think uh, they may be more likely to be oblivious to more subtle problems, like the issue of discrimination in faculty hiring and the like, uh, where it's not that there's violence going on, it's that uh, sort of decisions are made calmly uh, seemingly normally behind closed doors, but the result is you do end up with uh, a great deal of ideological homogeneity in uh, at least a number of academic fields. And uh, it may not be primarily the, respon- uh, the responsibility of students to try to combat this. It is first and foremost that of faculty and administrators, but if more students were aware of the problem and uh, at least spoke up about it, that would help at the margin to uh, try to address this.
0: Uh, to go to the cards now. Thank you very much. Everyone's coming up with great questions now. Uh, This is for all panelists, uh, and I assume it relates to the um, university situation. Should hate speech be tolerated? Should we allow voice to hate speech that marginalizes minorities, racial or religious or otherwise, and may threaten uh, the rights of minorities? Now, before Keith answers, I have to say on May 7th, Cato's going to have a, uh, another book forum with Nadine Strawson and she has a book on this very topic. So please keep your uh, eyes on the Cato website and sign up and come back on May 7th and we'll talk about this further. But for now, Professor Whittington.
1: Yeah, and and there's a section in my book on hate speech. It's a it's an active literature. There's a lot of people thinking about it because it's a serious problem that um, uh, calls for um, uh, some serious thinking. Um, in part because the the conflicts here are real. Um, there are some genuine tensions uh, in the values that we want to recognize. Um, so so I should just say briefly then about I think that one we should be very cautious about the label of hate speech. So a huge number of things can f- uh, fly under that um, label, and it's often and unclear uh, what exactly people uh, uh, are talking about uh, when they want to use the label, and sometimes it sweeps very broadly, um, and sometimes it sweeps uh, much, more, much more narrowly, um, and I think we, we should be particularly cautious about it sweeping broadly. So when some people um, talk about free, uh, hate speech, what they really um, are wanting to suppress are a set of ideas um, that they find particularly disagreeable, um, and that they think uh, might lead to particular kinds of social and political consequences, um, and I think that necessarily has to be resisted, um, Universities are all about um, hearing controversial ideas, um, skeptically examining them, um, and expressing the disagreements, um, not simply um, suppressing um, and and censoring them. And so on the one hand, we want to emphasize that universities um, are um, uh, inclusive communities that we want lots of people with a wide range of views and experiences and backgrounds on college campuses. Um, that's critically important. Um, but what you're getting when you come to a college campus um, is you're getting an environment in which people are willing to think seriously about difficult ideas um, and that you should recognize that's part of what you're doing on a college campus and, and we don't want to um, either accidentally or on purpose uh, design a speech code that will um, uh, try to suppress the latter, um, even as it's trying potentially to advance the former.
2: So again, I largely agree. I think I, I understand some of the motivation for the effort to suppress racist and other prejudiced speech. If you write uh, publicly in defense defensive things like open borders, immigration, as I do, you will get hate email and the like, which is from people saying ugly, anti-Semitic, and other kinds of things. Uh, so I do understand how it can be painful to hear that kind of stuff because I've heard it in my own life and it's very unpleasant and annoying. And in some cases, it's like, do you, do I have the impulse of like, I want to suppress these people and lock them up. But uh, that impulse should be resisted for a couple reasons. Uh, one is I think even people who say hateful things do have a right to freedom of speech for inherent reasons. It's part of the freedom that we should all, be able to enjoy, but also because, as Keith explains very well in his book, uh, we cannot trust either government officials or, in most cases, university authorities to draw the line in the right place. If you do draw it narrowly, uh, you will get the experience that actually uh, some European countries have had where they ban racist speech and anti-Semitic speech, uh, but then you still have the uh, for instance the AFd uh, neo-fascist party winning 13 percent of the vote in the german election how does the AFd operate what they do is they have symbols which are slightly different from the officially banned Nazi symbols uh, and they engage in rhetoric which are just slightly different or alike from the officially banned Nazi rhetoric and therefore they're able to propagate their ideas anyway if you respond to these kinds of circumventions by by casting your net more broadly and banning more stuff, then pretty soon, uh, you're, you have a much more robust and severe censorship regime out there, and it will ban a lot of ideas uh, that are not you know, racism in the narrow sense or anti-Semitism in a narrow sense or whatnot. Uh, and therefore, uh, I think in the vast majority of cases, at least, the way to prevent this sort of problem is not to start down the path of censorship in the first place, even though uh, it does mean that we will suffer some pain from people who really are racist, neo-Nazis, and so
0: forth. To what extent do you think misinterpretations of federal civil rights statutes like Title VI and Title IX has contributed to campus illiberalism or intolerance? Do you see legal solutions? Uh, this question is for either panelist. I
1: don't know. You want to start with that? You may have a better uh, sense than
0: I do.
2: So I'm not truly an expert in this field. My wife, who uh, is in the audience right now, actually has written about this. Uh, I think. There have been some problems with broad interpretations of what counts as sexual harassment under Title IX, uh, which in some cases do end up suppressing speech. I'm not sure there has been as much of a problem with Title VI, uh, though I could be wrong about that. My general sense of things is that uh, these overbroad interpretation should be cut back. One of the few good things that the new administration is doing is that they they, they are, in fact, taking a look at this and probably will cut back some of the uh, guidance memos that were issued in the Obama administration on this. At the same time, I think that this sort of phenomenon accounts for only a very small proportion of the free speech problems that we see on campus. Uh, there are other aspects of it, such as uh, dealing with sexual assault cases or sexual assault charges where, in some cases, there's insufficient due process given to those accused. That's a problem, I think, separate from the issue of free speech, uh, I think the Title IX thing does contribute to the free speech problem on campus, but it's probably, at least my sense is, that it's a fairly modest contribution.
0: That's where I land as well, yeah. So I want to combine a couple of questions from Twitter. To what extent is campus censorship driven by a culture of extreme risk aversion among administrators, which is exploited by vocal minorities rather than any ideological administrative hostility? If so, what can we do about it? And the second question connected to that is, does this explain why there's so few uh, ex- people, uh, students being expelled or banned uh, as outside, or banning of outsiders who caused many of these problems?
1: Um, I think risk-avoiding administrators are certainly part of the problem. Um, And uh, in part because they're willing to tolerate things they shouldn't um, uh, tolerate, um, such as bad student behavior in some cases. Um, But in other cases, because they're willing to um, act in ways to suppress speech they shouldn't uh, be doing. So, for example, it's very common, uh, as Ilya mentioned, um, that... Uh, faculty um, whose uh, comments uh, get picked up by the public media and attract attention uh, in a broader political landscape uh, wind up uh, generating controversy, and then administrators think that the best way of dealing with the fact um, that some of their uh, faculty have said something controversial is to fire them um, as soon as as soon as possible, um, or do other things to try to suppress their speech. And that's often a function of risk avoidance by those administrators, rather than that the administrators themselves are intrinsically ideologically motivated. Um, Um, are concerned is that their vision um, of what universities ought to be doing um, is um, to um, have a sterling brand that parents find very comfortable um, and that, that controversial professors or controversial speakers on campus or controversial students uh, run run contrary um, to that uh, uh, image. Um, and I think it's important then for, uh, for example, parents and alumni and donors to understand what universities actually are, um, to insist that the universities um, Uh, not be pursuing a brand in which um, everything looks very shiny um, and there's no controversy, but instead that they pursue a brand in which people are intellectually serious um, and willing to have controversy and willing to disagree with one another. And then the assistant administrators um, respect those values and and try to promote them. Um, It's hard for administrators to do it on their own. We really need to create a larger culture um, that insists on that as well.
2: Yeah, so I think it's easy to blame administrators and in some cases they really do deserve the blame but it's worth also remembering that there's actually a lot of variation in their behavior so some universities like the University of Chicago for example have actually taken a pretty strong stance in favor of freedom of speech UC Berkeley which is often seen as this bastion of leftism nonetheless they have uh, ensured that people like Yiannopoulos and others can speak there and they have picked up the security costs themselves Uh, the uh, Dean of the the new dean of the UC Berkeley Law School, uh, Erwin Chemerinsky, a very prominent left of center legal scholar, has been very outspoken in defense of campus free speech. He has co-authored a book about the subject, which has also come out recently. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, therefore, I think there is variation here, and uh, we should try to build on the good developments. And to the extent that people are risk averse, it's worth conveying to them that there is risk in allowing speech suppression as well. That doesn't create a good public image uh, for the school. Uh, And I think we could work on it that way. I would not want to try to achieve a situation where we have like really big risk takers as college administrators. Uh, I think there is good reason for uh, administrators, particularly of well-established universities, to not be people who are constantly taking huge risks uh, because they're administering big, complicated institutions that have lot of moving parts and a a good high rank administrator has to be aware of that.
1: Yeah, I should note that that my own president at Princeton University is very good on these issues. He's vocal on free speech matters. And I think that's important that you have university leadership um, that understands and appreciates the principles and is willing to articulate um, and defend them when particular controversies um, arise. It makes a difference um, on a college campus if you have administrators willing to stand up for that. Um, And I should also note, because he'd be annoyed with me if I didn't, um, that my sometimes co-author, Howard Gilman, who's now the chancellor at uh, UC Irvine, is the co-author on the free speech book with Erwin Chemerinsky. Um, Howard's also been very good at UC Irvine and trying to um, emphasize these issues and is speaking out um, on them as well. Um, and theirs is a perfectly good book, um, uh, although it takes more of a con law angle than mine does. But if you want a nice um, introduction, first. you should buy mine no, I mean, first. His. And if you have some extra money, you should buy theirs, because it's uh, <laughs> especially if you have an interest in sort of a summary of constitutional law on the issue, they're very good about that.
0: So there's uh, a question that goes to, I think, uh, um, Suggested many people have or suspicion many people have you you make the point in the book that there's been a number of different crises at various times there's been donors and and then Sometimes at various points and even today conservatives or outsiders particularly conservative have some effect on speech uh, Is it the case that really there is no crisis of free speech? This is just something where relatively few very extreme conservative provocateurs have caused these kinds of uh, events and that it's all been played up by the conservative press and uh, individuals and so on and even a tv channel maybe and so there's nothing really here it's just all it's not all politics of the left but rather all politics of the right what do you think
1: um, so I think it's it can be simultaneously the case that both things are true. So there are um, people who want to play it up, um, and they are, um, and they have their own reasons for trying to play up and exploit um, these problems when they arise and even create the problems um, uh, on occasion by being provocative um, on campus in a ways that are precisely designed um, uh, to generate um, clashes that will um, – um, put uh, people on campus in, in a bad light. Um, so I think that's true. It's also true that um that some of these things are just much more visible than they might once have been. Um, So uh, when uh, Charles Murray uh, was shouted down at Middlebury, for example, part of what got a lot of attention was the fact that that was recorded and the video went viral, Um, that that wouldn't have been true 10 or 15 years ago. Um, So we're much much more aware of things that happen on college campuses now uh, than we used to be, and that may make it look like it's happening a lot more often um, then, really, in fact, it does, but also it makes it feel like it's happening a lot more often than it used to happen. Um, and it's not completely evident um, that it's necessarily happening a lot more often. Um, than it used to, although I think there are particular um, elements of it. But, having said all that, I think it is true that there are genuine problems um, on some college campuses. There are places within universities that, in fact, are very hostile um, to free speech. There are some particular colleges and universities um, where they've got a very particular problem in their own immediate campus culture. Um, And it's important to address those problems when they arise. It's important to try to fix those problems. And I think it's constantly important to try to push back um, against those that are advocating the other side. So, for example, we think about where exactly should we draw the line legally um, on suppressing speech that we might be think is dangerous or where exactly should we think the line ought to be on hate speech and is hate speech constitutionally protected. If you do not fight those fights on the college campus now with students now and with faculty now, that are pushing back on those. Don't be surprised that 10 or 20 years from now, you don't see courts making decisions that move that line um, on dangerous speech or don't embrace the view that hate speech is not constitutionally protected. And as a consequence, your constitutional law um, looks very, different Um, so the the debates that we're seeing on college campuses now um, could be a foreshadowing of debates that we'll see uh, in the legal arena down the road and so it's important to fight these debates now.
2: Again I largely agree I think It is true that there are sort of right-wing provocateurs who go on campus, say offensive things in some cases for the very purpose of generating a violent reaction. If Ann Coulter speaks in a campus and her speech goes off without a hitch, that's actually bad for her brand name or it's not as good as it would be if her speech gets disrupted and then she can promote it on Twitter. Uh, So this is true to some extent, though if you're an opponent of Ann Coulter, you should realize that this is what she wants and therefore even aside from free speech principles it's not in your the interest of your movement to violently disrupt her uh, uh, it's better if uh, that it doesn't happen. At the same time, disruption is not limited to these cases with the Ann Coulter's The World. Uh, there have been cases involving even left-wing finger figures like Peter Singer, the famous uh, political philosopher, speakers representing the ACLU, and a number of other cases. So there are enough cases involving people who cannot be placed in the same category as Ann Coulter or Milo Yiannopoulos that it is disturbing, it is a problem, and there's more subtle problems of ideological discrimination in faculty hiring and other such matters which are uh, quite significant. Uh, and therefore, wow. It's important not to paint with a broad brush, and think, oh, this is the end of civilization, and you know, we have Nazism or gulags on campus or whatnot taking over. It's also important not to go to the opposite extreme and say, well, there really is no problem, except whatever has been gin- ginned up by you know, some right-wing provocateurs for the purpose of getting uh, more retweets.
0: So a couple of questions. Uh- about high schools. This last weekend, we saw a really large march here in Washington, March for Our Lives, which featured uh, several high school students (laughs) exercising free speech and political participation rights. Uh, But to what extent do you think, on the student side of things, that uh, issues about freedom of speech, issues about tolerance, uh, when the students arrive, I don't know if you teach freshmen at Princeton or not, but when they do arrive, they're already sort of baked in there, because in high schools, freedom of speech itself is not very uh, protected or t- perhaps taught, or you know, there's a fair amount of control of speech. Is, is it the issues before the university that really are crucial here?
1: I think mean, that's for sure true, that, that students arrive with um, uh, a set of experiences and expectations based on uh, what they've seen uh, growing up, including what they've seen in the particular institutional environment um, of primary and secondary schools, um, and it's natural for them to carry that over to a university environment and and... Um, Those schools, somewhat appropriately, are not as um, free speech oriented as universities are, although students do have uh, some free speech rights uh, in secondary schools um, as well. Um, And part of what's important as we orient um, students to campus and bring them into college campuses um, is to get them to appreciate um, that they're not small children anymore. Um, that they're not in the same kind of institutional educational environment um, that they uh, once were in, um, and that they have broader rights of free speech. And moreover, they're in an environment in which free speech is going to be valued and protected um, in a way that they might not have been previously familiar with, um, and they should understand what they're getting into uh, when when they're coming into higher education and when they're uh, graduating from high school.
2: Yeah, so the whole issue of free speech in high school and the way students' lives are managed in high school and uh, even earlier in school, it perhaps requires a whole book of its own, and there is some literature on this, but the desirable to have more, uh, that if you think about it, what happens in the average high school is that your time is highly regimented uh, by the school authorities. You have to go to the classes that they say you have to go to, and you get taught, a, for the most part at least, a state-mandated curriculum, which uh, in many states includes some elements of indoctrination. Um, uh, and some of this is perhaps inevitable, given the age and uh, relative immaturity of the students, but something needs to be seriously rethought. But instead, in at least quite a lot of schools, things have been getting worse, particularly in the age of zero tolerance policies uh, and the like. And I don't have a complete answer to this in my own mind. Even if I did, I couldn't sketch it all out here. But I think the problem bears serious consideration, not just or even primarily because of its impact on free speech and college campuses. I think there are these sort of broader problems that are caused by having this sort of model of
0: education. So for a final question, what role does first year student education and training, first year at the university, uh, education and training on free speech, civil debate, the heckler's veto, and so on, what role does that all that play in better educating students on civil debate and dealing with some of these issues? Do colleges and universities do enough of this now, this kind of education?
1: So I I don't think they do, and I think they should. Um, I think colleges have taken for granted that students had an interest in investment in free speech. I think colleges have taken for granted um, that students understood what they were getting into um, and coming into an educational environment in which um, they'll be um, tested and their ideas will be pushed and they'll be exposed um, to unsettling ideas. Um, And and universities shouldn't have taken that for granted, Um, and we should stop taking it for granted. We should recognize that students don't necessarily understand what they're getting into, they aren't necessarily being socialized and educated uh, into um, what it would means to be a responsible member of a campus community and a productive and contributing member um, of that community. And I think universities then need to more self-consciously um, uh, try to explain to students, including prospective students, that not only do they have really great gyms uh, and really nice dorms, um, but also they have really controversial people on campus exploring ideas in a really serious way. Um, and if you're coming to college campuses Uh, you should expect your ideas to be tested. Um, And that if you have beliefs that you regard as very dear to you um, and unquestioned beliefs um, of your own, you should recognize that somewhere on the college campus there are people who question those beliefs and don't hold them dearly. Um, And that's fine um, and appropriate. Um, And you should expect that you're going to encounter those people uh, when you get to to a college campus. Um, So I think it's important to explain to um, the larger society, but especially the incoming students, um, that that's what universities are. um, and that's what makes them great. Um, they may not be right for everybody, um, but if, if, if you're coming to college, um, you should expect to encounter some unsettling ideas.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I agree. So my penultimate thought will be, Ilya mentioned preference falsification, which is a very powerful idea in social science. Uh, it occurred to me immediately for the first time that there's actually a phrase for that, it's called knowing what's good for you, right? that it actually exists at uh, many campuses. Well, this has been great. This has been great. I'd like to thank uh, our speakers today, Keith Whittington and Ilya Solman. I'd like to thank you for coming. And I'd like to invite you to go upstairs to the second floor now for our, our traditional lunch uh, after, the, uh, after the event. Thanks very much.